All right. I want to take a few minutes to get in the Word before we go home. And in the process, I want to try to introduce the theme that's going to occupy our midweek college Bible study for the rest of this semester, namely the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit being one of those things. Um, and, and more specifically, tonight I, uh, I want to introduce the topic, not just so that you know what it is, um, I also want to do it, try to do it in such a way that you also know how vitally important it is to your life and how fundamentally you will misunderstand the Christian gospel and the Christian life um, apart from it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you don't have a physical Bible, find it in your, uh, in your phone, Philippians chapter 2. So the text, if you're, you're probably familiar with it, um, it's not a passage about the Holy Spirit per se, um, but I, I do think that it's an appropriate one to introduce how I want us to frame what we're going to think about this semester. So Philippians chapter 2, our, our, we're going to look, what we're going to do tonight is take a deep dive into verses 12 and 13. We're just going to take it apart phrase by phrase, but just we're going to start reading for context in chapter 1, verse 27, and then uh, read through chapter 2, verse 13. And there Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Man, if you, that's a, that's a stout phrase if you knew the opponents they had in that day. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but also of your salvation that from, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now... Here that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. By the way, I think a better translation right there would be, did not count equality with God a thing to be, it means to be grasped, but it means to be held onto and used for his own advantage. That's what it literally means. So, uh, that's affirming that he is God. He is in the form of God. But he, when he came as a man, he did not use that to his own advantage. He humbled himself. Okay, Verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
by the way, um, I, I don't know, <laughs> little asides. Um, so I love C.S. Lewis, and, uh, but I don't just a little quibble I have with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis liked to say that uh, he, he was trying to make the point that um, he was trying to make the point of to how sinful our sin really is and how rebellious we really are at heart. And so one of the ways he used to uh, try to convey that is this imagery that in hell the doors are locked from the inside. In other words, uh, God didn't lock them in there. They locked themselves in there, right? And, um, and that's poetic, and it sounds, it sounds like, ooh, they're really rebellious. However, it's just not according to Scripture because this says every, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means they didn't lock the door from the inside. They're going to be bowing to Christ. They're not going to be continuing in their rebellion in that time. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. So that at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Beautiful words. All right, let's pray as we dive in. Lord, this, what we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. In those last two, uh, two verses, verses 12 and 13, there's so much just there in those, those two verses. Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truth there? Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us hearts to embrace and love what you tell us there? Would you give us wills to obey what it urges us to do? Give us all ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I think that... Uh, I'm not, going to say, I'm not going to speak for everybody in this room, a lot of people in this room. I think, uh, by and large, we, uh, evangelical Christians, we're, we're clear on the gospel. The gospel that says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Born of woman, born under the law, lived a perfect life, in our place, that's what the scripture said, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15, uh, there was no, another, uh, he committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Scripture says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, if there's no deceit in his mouth, no deceit in his heart, lived a perfect life in our place, he, he walked in perfect obedience in our place died on the cross for our sins, was raised to life again on the third day, so that because He lived and He died and He rose again as our substitute, when we repent of our sins and when we trust in Him, our, the promise of God is that our sins are forgiven, um, we are clothed in His righteousness to stand before God, 
don't have any righteousness of my own, so how am I ever to have any hope of standing righteous before God? I don't have any righteous. Jesus gives me his righteousness. And the scripture says we are hidden with Christ in God. That's, that's a precious promise in Colossians chapter 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you feel rotten about yourself, no matter. Jesus is perfect and you're hidden in him. The gospel, that's the gospel we believe. That's the gospel we preach. That God accepts us on the basis of what he has done for us. Not on the basis of anything that we can do for him. We're clear on how we as sinners can be forgiven of our sins by and large and be accepted in, and, as righteous before God. What, what we're not always as clear on or on the same page on is what happens after that. What happens after I'm that moment of faith and I have the promise of God that I'm accepted with Him? How, what happens then? I've repented of my sins. I've placed my faith in what Jesus has done for me as my substitute. So that as Romans 5.1 says, since we've been justified, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do I do now? And two errors, I, by and large, have sprung up from time to time um, out of this confusion or this question. One group of people sort of for the rest of the Christian life, leaves everything up to God and sort of neglects our role in our growth in holiness and maturity in the faith. And uh, as a Christian, two examples of that would be, um, there's, two, there's two, two kind of versions of that. One is the, the person who, man, they, they would never say this, but they act like it. It doesn't matter what I do. It's really like a, just a, a, a grace abuser right? Um, doesn't matter how I live, God will forgive me and whatever. The other, the other version of that uh, does, actually does desire to be holy, but are totally passive about it, just sort of let go and let God. Others, um, on the other end of the spectrum, they live the rest of their Christian life as, 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 if, it's, as, as if it's entirely up to them. Like... Um, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. I keep peace with God through what I do or don't do. We get in because of what Jesus did. We stay in because of what we do. That's, I don't know that anybody would articulate it that way, but that's kind of how they go through their days with that. That's the extreme of those who... The extreme is it's those who believe, the extreme on that, on that end of the spectrum is those who believe you can actually lose your salvation. But there are many of us who don't necessarily believe you can lose your salvation, but you still go throughout your day sort of keeping a point system implicitly with God. Um, and you, you kind of have a sense of where you stand before God based on your, your obedience or performance or not. I think our text tonight navigates between those two extremes. Paul is saying here in Philippians 2 that as believers, he's writing to believers, say that in chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So he's writing to believers. He's telling believers that we, in chapter 2, verse 12, must work out our salvation. We must do something. But Paul also gives, in verse 13, the basis for all of this because God works in us. 
the Holy Spirit works in us, and, and we work. Okay? One person said it, I, I can't remember who said it, put it this way, but they put it well. Paul, in this passage, Paul is teaching not that God accepts you, and therefore no change is necessary in your life. Paul is saying, God accepts you, therefore change is now possible in your life. So our text that we're going to dive deep into the, tonight basically states two points. God works in you, therefore you must work. Second point is, God works in you, therefore you can work. God works in you, therefore you must work. You must work. God works in you, therefore you can work. And as we unpack that in this text, I just want to look carefully at it. I believe it shows us in three, three different ways that we must work. Just looking at the text here, we're going to see that Paul says you must work. As you work out your own salvation, you must work out your salvation with perseverance. You must work out your salvation with perseverance. He's going to say in verse 12 as well, you must work out your salvation with integrity. And I'll explain what I mean by this. You must work out your salvation with perseverance. You must work out your salvation with integrity. Third, you must work out your salvation with reverent humility. But praise be to God, he comes around in verse 13, and all of those musts are rooted and grounded in a final point, that you can work out your salvation in these ways with confident assurance. That's verse 13. And we're going to see why we can be so confident and have that assurance. In other words, we, we can persevere in God because He preserves us. And we're going to see that He does that through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's how this ties into what we're doing this semester. So, Having said that, let's look closely at this text. It's a, man, I'm a big fan of Scripture memory. Memorize these two verses. Memorize Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I mean like, Drill them into your bones. There's such a comforting passage of Scripture. All right. Paul begins this passage with the word, therefore. So he's drawing a conclusion based on things he's already said. He's going to take stuff that he's already said, he's going to draw it all up into a conclusion. He's talk, 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 talk. Therefore, on the basis of all this, here's what I say. Now, what has he just said? What, what's he tying up into a bow right here? Well, uh, he gave the first, this is why we started reading back in chapter 1. He gave the first exhortation and the first command in chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He get, and then he gives Jesus as an example of what, 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 what that manner of life might look like. So he holds Jesus up. In the early part of chapter 2, like in verse 5, he describes with Jesus, and he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, so have this mind, this, among yourself, this, this one that was in Christ Jesus. His humility and his reverence, his obedience to the point of death, even on a cross. He says, so when he says in chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he first holds up Jesus as your supreme example of what that obedience would look like. But then, in, chat, in verses 9 through, through 11, he also holds Jesus up as the supreme Lord to whom we owe that obedience. And on that basis, Paul begins with our text. Therefore, knowing that I've been commanded 
to work to walk in a manner worthy. Jesus is my example as well as my Lord to whom I owe it. Therefore, what do I do now? What are we supposed to do now? Knowing he's my, my example and he's my Lord, the, end, the, 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 the crux of this passage is the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the central command of this passage. Work out your salvation. It's a command. You, if you call yourself a Christian, you must work out that salvation now that you have been saved. You, the, that phrase there, that, that, that word there that's translated work out is a, is a farming term. means to cultivate. It's like you would cultivate the dirt to plant a crop. You would prepare and cultivate the soil so that it produces a harvest. And, and this is saying, cultivate your salvation that's in your heart. Cultivate it. Work it. It's a command. And note it. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. We can't work for it, but we can work it out or cultivate it. That gift of salvation is already given to us when we trusted Christ. So if we must work out our salvation, how, how do we do it? And Paul gives three ways, and I mentioned it before. We're going to start working through those. The, worst, work, the first is, when, you, when he says work out your salvation, he, the first way is you must work out your salvation with, with perseverance. With perseverance. Look at the first part of verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... As you have always obeyed, so now. Paul, along with um, Silas and Timothy, they planted and started this church in Philippi. You can read that about the, the starting of the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And you can read about the remarkable work of salvation that God did in that place in, in, in Philippi. You remember... you. Uh, he received a vision from God to go to Philippi and preach the gospel there. And the first thing he did is he went down by the river where he supposed some people were praying. And the first Gentile convert in Paul's ministry came to faith, Lydia, who was a seller of purple cloth. She came to faith. Remember, they stirred up a riot and, and they were thrown in, they were almost beaten, they were thrown in jail. God sent an earthquake that night, and the Philippian jailer there got, got miraculously saved. He came to faith, and others. I mean, it was a crazy, miraculous time there in Philippi. And here in Philippians, we learn that they remained faithful from that day on. I mean, he said that in, 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 uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Remember, if you flip back there, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, be, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So they had been faithful. But he doesn't, say, he doesn't, he doesn't conclude that because they've been faithful, I, can, I, can, I don't have to worry about it anymore. No, he says in chapter 2, verse 12, as you've always obeyed, so now, he feels compelled to, to, to exhort them to press on in that. He feels that same way about himself. If you look in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, Paul says about himself, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on 
to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says this even for the mature. Look in verse 15 of chapter 3. Let those of who are mature think this way. So, perseverance is not just for the immature. Perseverance is for the mature. And he applies the same to them and now. So, back in chapter 2. As you have always obeyed, so now. Perseverance is necessary in the Christian life. It's necessary. And that requires work and diligence on our part to, to, to we'll just keep coming, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll, we're going to flesh this out over the whole semester uh, of, of what, what is entailed in, in, this, in this work. Um, but Jesus, Jesus was clear that perseverance is necessary in the Christian life. Parable of the sower, Luke chapter 8. A sower went out to sow his seed, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And he explains what that means a few verses later when he says, The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root, and they believe for a while, and in the time of testing, they fall away. And that's for what fell among the thorns. They are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. Neither persevered. Paul, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He even names a guy in 2 Timothy 4.10 who did that named Demas. Demas, he said, was in love with this present world, and he deserted him. He mentions two others in 1 and 2 Timothy. Paul does, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he says that they made shipwreck of their faith. Well, how do we understand these? Did they lose their salvation? No. No. Um, without going on and on about it, they, uh, the Scripture is very clear that those who fall away or wander away, fall in love with this present world and fall away, if they, if they never returned, they never were saved to begin with. They never were born again. Right? Paul knows these things, and he exhorts, he exhorts them here uh, to, to, to don't rely on their past faithfulness. Continue walking in obedience. Continue walking in a manner worthy of Christ. Because he knows that so very often, those who wander away from the faith do not do so suddenly. They don't do it suddenly. Paul said Demas deserted him. Why? Because he was in love with this present world. How do you fall in love with this present world? Gradually. Gradually. Being lulled to sleep by the comforts and the pleasures. And Jesus said you're gradually choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. The mark of those who are genuinely born again is perseverance in the faith. Not only in right doctrine and right beliefs, but also in walking and living in a manner worthy of all these things. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul talked about those who are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. He didn't say that they 
they, they would perish because they refused to know the truth. Love it. Love the truth. That's how you persevere. Not just by knowing the truth, but by loving the truth. That's why I pray every time. Every time we come and open this word together. It's why I pray, Lord, help us to see the truth here. Know the truth clearly. Understand it clearly. And embrace it and love it. Wills to obey. We live out and we're engaged with the things that we truly love. But man, how, how, how do you feel like you're doing with that on a lot of days? How do you feel like you're doing with that? A lot of days I am so aware of my weakness and my sinfulness and my waywardness. It may, you may not see it, but I know it. All right? You can't see my heart and my head, but I know it. And it doesn't get any easier. So perseverance... I don't feel like I'm real good at it a lot of times. But he says, I must do it. But man, my flesh is weak. But it doesn't get any easier because he says, in Paul's thinking here, working out your salvation with perseverance also means that you will do it with integrity. Integrity. What is integrity? Integrity, what does that mean? It means, at, at its root, it means whole, undivided, um, complete, which, which, and in, in, in human terms, it's, it's, it's like what David was getting about, about his own heart in the Psalms. In Psalm 86, verse 11 and 12, when, when David prayed to the Lord and he said, he prayed, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name so that he could give thanks to the Lord, quote, with my whole heart. Integrity would mean you don't have an undivided heart. And you are, you are in public and in private the same person because you don't have, an, you don't have a divided heart. And Paul says this is it's a necessary ingredient and a necessary aspect of our persevering in the faith. Where do we see that in the text? He look again at verse 12. He says, as you've always obeyed so now, and then he says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. When I'm here, when I'm not here. Integrity. They're not one way when Paul is there and another way when he's not. They are who they are because of Christ, not because of Paul. Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. He had been in prison for his faith. And his exhortation is that they are to work out their salvation and live in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether he's there or not. This isn't the first time he said this either. Again, we started in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I can hear that you're standing firm. This is why I say we must work out our salvation with integrity, because the true indicator of our perseverance in the faith is how we live, how we think, how we love, how we act when nobody else is around. Perseverance in the faith is not measured by church attendance or missional community group attendance or a person can attend church and miscom for all the wrong reasons. A person can attend those things and, and appear to be one kind of person. 
And even when it comes, when, when in a missional community group, we have, you know, a lot of times guys split up with guys and girls with girls, and they have confession time, and you can even in that time choose carefully what you choose to confess. I mean, we can even sin as we repent of our sins. Paul knew that the Philippians could be one way when he was there, but a totally different way when he's not. He also knew the Scriptures. Paul knew that Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And we also remember Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts, discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And again, Paul wrote in Romans 2.16 that there will be a day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This one, this is one that cuts deep, if we're honest. Because we know, I know, we know how often the the weakness of our flesh is evident by how much more concerned we are to please man than God. I say that. I, I'm not saying you do that. I, we do that. It's dumb. Which, because that's what we the weakness of our flesh, that, that produces a discon- that's what produces a disconnect between what others know of us and what we know of ourselves. Even when we know the right thing to do and on one level have a real desire to do it, on another level our flesh is weak and we don't always do what we know is the right thing to do. And we, even what we feel is right, we don't do it. The image, we project, image of ourselves that we project in front of others, we project it on social media, it isn't necessarily what we know is the whole picture of ourselves. And our perseverance in faithful obedience with this kind of integrity is spotty at best. But this passage says it's something we're to pursue Work it out. Cultivate it in our lives at all times without ceasing. Integrity means undivided. We're not divided people. We're not one way around some, one way around others. I stink at this. I know how weak my flesh is. Paul gives a third way that we have to work out our salvation. Not just with, um, not just with perseverance and integrity, but also with... Um, Reverent humility. Reverent humility. That's also in verse 12. Where do we see that in verse 12? In that last phrase. Work out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now what does that mean? What are we to be afraid of? What are we supposed to tremble at? Is Paul saying there that we should work out our own salvation with a constant fear that you're going to mess it up? 
trembling that you're going to screw it up with a constant fear of losing your salvation or that you might not be saved at all. I don't think that's the point. Um, especially in light of what we're going to read in verse 13. Stay with me. Don't drop out here. And the promise he's already given in chapter 1. I'm sure of this, that the he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The day of Christ Jesus. Still true. Now it is true that the genuineness of our faith is manifested by our lives of obedience. When nobody's there, when everybody's there. And Jesus said it again and again and again. A tree is known by its fruit. Outward actions reveal inward realities. Paul told the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And while all those things are true, I don't think that Paul is saying to work out your salvation with fear and trembling that you might not be saved. It's not what he's saying. I think it has more to do with working out our salvation with a proper perspective on the one to whom we owe the obedience. We need to remember again that verse 12 began with the word, therefore. And he, and he just got finished saying, before the therefore, he just finished saying that God has highly exalted Jesus. And he has the name that is above every name. And that one day, one day every knee will bow to him. And every tongue will confess. Confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the culmination of all human history. Everything that happens in our world. You look at the stuff that's going on in Afghanistan and how the evildoers feel so strong and how they feel so in charge. They're not. They're digging their own eternal grave. And justice is going to come down hard. That's Jesus is Lord. And it's, this is leading to a day when everyone knowledge, acknowledges that, even those who have never believed. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when Paul says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he means with a seriousness, with a soberness, with reverence, with humility, not proud, not arrogant. It's like you've heard probably the example before, like in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe with Aslan, right? He's not, he, he's not safe. I mean, he's, he, he's not safe. <laughs> You're safe in his presence, but he's not safe, right? This is the one whom we serve and obey. This is the one before whom one day everyone will stand and give an account. So as you persevere and pursue integrity, Revere the one that you obey. So up to this point in our passage, Paul has made it absolutely clear, you must work out your own salvation. You must cultivate God's gift of salvation in your life because when God saved you, He did not just forgive your sins. He also desires that you be conformed to the likeness of Christ in every way. 
That does not happen in your life just by waking up every day to new mercies. Paul has made it clear that those who have trusted Christ for their salvation now have an obligation to cultivate that and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But is this where he leaves it? Does he seem to say, do it? Buck up. Do your best. Hope it's enough. You're on your own. Based on how weak I know my flesh and my sinful nature is, I hope not. But that's not all he says. Verse 12 gives us the command, work out your own salvation. Verse 13 gives us the marvelous truth whereby we can fulfill that command. And that has everything to do with what we're going to think about this semester on Wednesday nights. You can work out your salvation with confident assurance. Even as you're fearing and trembling, you can do it with confident assurance. Even despite what you know are your many failings, and you know how weak and wayward you are in yourself, Paul still teaches here that we can work out our salvation in Christ with confident assurance because of another factor at work. Let's read verse... Verses 12 and 13 again, and give close attention to how verse 13 begins. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to work, will and to work for his good pleasure. Sometimes the most comforting words in the Bible are the itty-bitty ones. The most comforting words are not always justified and sanctified and propitiation. Sometimes it's for. Because. It is God who works in you. So God doesn't save us just by working for us, but also by working in us. And it's precisely here where we see this semester's theme because God's working in us, in our experience, that centers on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in your life as a believer. When, when this passage says God works in you, that is primarily through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. And notice, just, just this is why it's good to... Memorize this passage because it just keeps rolling around in your head and you notice little things. Notice the amazement or the wonder or the celebration that Paul says this with. He doesn't simply say, for God works in you. He goes, for it is God who works in you. Who's working in you? God himself. God himself is working in us so that we can obey what he commands us to do. And notice he says it's a continual thing. He doesn't say God worked in you. He says God works in you now. And we need to make very clear the relation here. We don't cooperate with God. It's not as if God does his part and we do our part. It's not as if God stops working while we start working and then while we stop, he starts. That's not Paul's point at all. Paul is saying because God is working now, we can work now. 
It happens at the same time, but we're entirely dependent on His work to do our work. And notice also, Paul tells us how God works in us. What does He do? He works in us both, both to will and to work. So it's not as if it's willing and working. It's not that just that God gives me the idea or the inclination to work out my salvation. He doesn't give me the idea and the inclination to, I'll read my Bible today. I'm going to tell that person about Jesus today. I'm going to pray for ever how long today. I'm going to be generous. I, don't, I only have five bucks. That dude asked for five bucks. Here's my only five bucks. I, he didn't just give me the idea and the inclination, but he supplies us with everything to actually do it. Well, as one writer put it, God works in us the entire process of our sanctification, both the willing of it and the doing of it. The harder we work, the more sure we may be that God is working in us. Right? When you, when you feel sorrow for sin, and you desire to grow in holiness, and you want to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel, that is you feeling sorrow. And that is you desiring but it doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit in you who is producing those things in you, producing those desires, enabling you to act on them. This semester we're going to think about who the Holy Spirit is and like next, next week, who the Holy Spirit is, the week after that, what does it mean when the Scripture says we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And the week after that, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And weeks after that, how do, what does it look like to display the fruit of the Spirit in our life? We're going to see how the Holy Spirit works in us through the Word. These, the Scripture is, we say it's inspired, inspired by who? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there's the Holy Spirit's words right here. And as we fill our minds with the Spirit's words, He works in us to make us more like Christ. He causes us to persevere in the faith and to walk in holiness and integrity and reverent humility, convicting us when we fall short, enabling us to... Repent and press on. And notice finally, we're going to wrap it up. That the, the Spirit does all these things, according to Paul, for His good pleasure. He delights in it. And really quickly, I just want to illustrate to you that that the Holy Spirit's work is for His good pleasure, and that's not opposed to His working in you for your good and your happiness. To say that He does it for His pleasure doesn't mean that it's not supposed to be for your pleasure as well. One of the most well-known and well-loved verses in all the Bibles, Romans 8, 28, also written by Paul, in which he says, and you could probably quote it, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to what? His purpose. And right there, His purpose, His pleasure, is not in conflict with our good. On the contrary, what is truly good for us, ultimately and eternally, is found in His purpose for us, not in our purpose for ourselves. So when you read that God the Holy Spirit works in you for His good pleasure, remember that when God the Holy... When, he, when, you, could read that, when you read that, you can read it to mean it's also for your happiness. It helps us to remember 
the goodness of God. It's because the, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That he can also say, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Anything that God gives us or the Holy Spirit does in us, even when it is conviction over our sin or prompting us to do things that we know will be hard, which may mean confessing sin that will be hard to confess. Yes, that will be for his good pleasure, but it, despite what it may feel like, it will also be for your good. I really look forward to thinking about the Holy Spirit with you this semester. I pray that we will grow together in the likeness of Christ through it. As our band comes up here to close us out in song, um, I'm going to pray for us. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this, um, this word. Lord, I, I pray for every person in this room. Lord, my, my prayer is that every person in this room would, um, would continue with us as we dive deeply into your word and think about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray that um, this semester would be a life-changing semester that we don't live the Christian life in our own strength, but we have um, you, Holy Spirit, giving us divine power to walk in holiness and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, change us and make us more like Christ this semester, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.